Let's just pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would help us as we hear it, help what is said, help what is heard, help what is contained in your truth, your your word, the Bible. Lord, help us to, to glean from it, help us to apply it. Lord, we pray this will be a blessing, a challenge as well as a blessing to us, a guide that will help us. Lord, we ask that you be with us now. Humble our hearts. Humble my heart. Humble the heart of everyone who hears, Lord, that we may hear your truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, <coughs> last week we looked at the place of God's word in our journey as pilgrims towards our heavenly home. Last week the sermon was titled, God's Word, Our Response. This week <coughs> we're looking on God's word in a little more detail. Looking at the truth that is contained within his word. That truth which sets us free from from all the lies and untruths of the enemy of this evil world that we are currently in. Truth is a casualty in many situations, from minor disputes about doctrines to outright fake news and conspiracy theories and misinformation and, and lies that People tell from the lowest to the highest, those in power to people on the streets. Truth is not just a set of facts, it's a way of life. And if we walk in the truth, it results in this truth which comes from God. As Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. We cannot have truth apart from Jesus. And if we want to walk in the truth, we need to walk following Jesus. Everybody believes something, and when people don't believe religion, they explain the unexplainable by other means. Conspiracy theories are the religion of many who are non-religious. They explain the sources of evil in the world in a very different way to how God's word explains it. Instead of sin and Satan, there are people in power who are evil who need to be opposed. Their solution is a different form of salvation than than what God's word offers. Instead of us needing to be saved by Christ, those who are weak and disempowered can save themselves if they band together and oppose those in power who they believe are corrupt. This is the pattern of QAnon, people who oppose the Illuminati, those who are opposed to one world order and all kinds of things. Even if people aren't following these things in particular, there's just a mindset of opposing the things that are that are heard, the things that are 
the news that comes across, people who are in power. Well, <clears throat> many of you might be pleased to hear, I'm not going to go into those de in detail today. Not only do we not have the time for it, it's not actually the best thing to do. The minute we get sucked into that, we've already, in a sense, lost the battle. What I'm going to do is, is look at how we should respond to these things, which often means not going down that road at all. But truth has been attacked in other ways too. Other problems have dogged the church for centuries. Even at the time of the apostles, we're told to beware of false teachers. On the one hand, there is the problem of false teachers, doctrines which are not in line with God's word. And they keep coming. Not just from outside, but even within the church. That's how the church goes wrong. Things within become dominant. It's not just always on the outside. On the other hand, there's those who cause division amongst God's people over things that are minor, that ought not to divide. There are splits in churches or disharmony amongst believers when only primary matters should divide us. If somebody doesn't believe in the, the Trinity, if somebody doesn't believe that we're justified by faith apart from works, if somebody doesn't believe that these essential things, then we can't have fellowship with them. They're believing a different gospel. But if we're united on the essentials, the minor matters ought not to disunite us or cause disharmony in the church. So there are many ways in which truth is harmed in the world, in the church. But our proper approach to truth, seeing God's word as the ultimate truth and basis of how we view the world, and how we ought to fellowship together can help us navigate this difficult topic in an increasingly post-truth world. To some extent, the question is not so much about truth, but what kind of community do we want to live in? A community of suspicious people who are fearful, or a community of people who are secure on the truths of God's word, community of people who are at peace, who have unity around Christ Jesus. Well, the problem is that we fall for falsehood more than we realise. This is more of a problem than we're prepared to admit. We can spot it in others, but it happens to all of us. We've all been subject to misinformation. We've all shared things which haven't been true. Sometimes we realise it. Sometimes we don't. We live in an age where there's not a universal acceptance that there even is such a thing as universal truth. Before the Enlightenment, people recognised that there was a truth and that it was God's truth. He created the world. Some people opposed it, but there was one truth. The Enlightenment, <clears throat> people recognise, yeah, there is one truth, but God's got nothing to do with it. The supernatural doesn't count. Miracles and everything were thrown out the window. Only the natural, only what could be proven by science was accepted as true. 
and we'll drift away from God's truth has taken a step even further with postmodernism where truth itself is even denied you can make up your own truth but don't let the facts get in the way don't let the real truth get in the way philosopher Michael Foucault claimed that reason is the ultimate language of madness suggesting that nothing should limit what we believe not even logic or evidence this is the natural consequence of centuries of turning away from God people don't even realise how illogical and daft that is his sentence doesn't even make sense if logic does not even exist. It is illogical. He cannot even make a logical sentence if logic does not exist. It, well, the philosophers might have got themselves in a bit of a twist. But at street level, people have found that they just do what they want and believe what they want. As the boy's own song, no matter what, illustrates... No matter what they tell us, no matter what they do, no matter what they teach us, what we believe is true. It doesn't matter what the truth is, what the facts are, what the provable reality is. We don't like it, let's just believe what we want. That's very popular. Mary Lefkowitz wrote in the New York Times book review about 20 years ago, the notion that there are many truths might seem well suited to a diverse society. But when everyone is free to define truth as he or she prefers, as at present, the result is an intellectual and moral shouting match in which the people with the loudest voices are most likely to be heard. That is, people end up not just believing different things peacefully and in their own little corners, they end up wanting to convert others and it becomes a, a shouting match on social media in conversations where people are trying to convert others to accept what they believe to their version of truth. And in this shouting match, lies travel far faster than truth. Mark Twain is believed to have said, a lie can travel halfway around the world while truth is still lacing up her boots. Well, that has been proved recently. Scientifically proven. <clears throat> in the March 2018 edition of the Science Journal, in a report titled The Spread of True and False News Online, the authors write, There is a worldwide concern over false news. To understand how false news spreads, the authors led by an MIT scientist who has studied fake news since 2013. They examined well over 100,000 rumours which were verified as either true or false on Twitter from 2006-2017. They found that fake news reached more people than the truth. They found that falsehood diffused significantly farther, faster, deeper and more broadly than the truth in all categories of information. They found that a false story reaches 1,500 people six times faster on average than a true story does. 
that's not a, an indictment of the technology. That's an indictment of the human heart that prefers false information six times more than the truth. They also find that whereas false stories inspired fear, disgust and surprise in replies, true stories inspired anticipation, sadness, joy and trust. The authors of the report reflect the concern of many others when they ask the question, how can we create a news ecosystem that values and promotes truth? They didn't realise it, but what they were asking was, how can we be saved? How can we know the truth? What they're concluding is that we need Jesus. We need the source of all truth. We prefer lies. We need our hearts changed. We've all fallen for something that was not true. We've all passed on information that we assume is true, but actually sometimes it turns out it's not. Oprah Winfrey, in her book club, she promoted a a book by James Fry, his memoir, A Million Little Pieces, sold millions of copies. However, when some people questioned the contents of it, the accuracy, whether it was true or not, Oprah, on the Larry King show, defended the book. She assumed that it was right. She said that this controversy over his truthfulness was much ado about nothing. She said the essential truth of his life was in his book. But a few weeks later, she had to reverse that opinion when it became clearer that a lot of it wasn't as she had thought and she apologised and many of us are in the same position where we assume something is true and we pass it on and actually we're just passing on something which is not true at all the only thing we can say at times is Instead of saying, did you know this, this and this? What we can say is, well, I've heard this, this and this. Well, we stand over the statement that we have heard it, because that is true, we know that. Whether it is true or not behind that is another matter. Sometimes all we know is that somebody has said something. But if we take it at face value that it's true, we're actually opening ourselves up to being misled sometimes. We have to be careful. But more important than information from others leading us astray, the root cause is sin and rejection of God's truth in the human heart. Fake news or false information, temptation to believe what is not true, it's as old as humanity itself. This Bible passage, which is so often overlooked, is actually very instructive. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit of the tr- any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit 
from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it could give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. Sometimes we come down a bit heavily on her because she is the one who had the discussion, but he was standing right beside her all the time. He is party to this as well. Paul describes this situation in Romans 7 verse 11 where he says that describing the age of innocence he says before sin came into the world he did not know evil but then sin deceived him sin deceived me and yet while Adam was sinless beforehand and sin was able to deceive even a sinless human being for us who are sinners sin is able to deceive us even much easier Let's notice a couple of things about this encounter which are we find repeated over and over again in everyday life. This pattern, this encounter happens every day. First, Satan questions God's word. He places doubt on what God has said. Has God really said? It's the same when Jesus was tempted, tempted in the wilderness. It's the same pattern of temptation, but he stood on God's word. He answered every temptation with a Bible verse, God's truth. Second, Eve misquotes God's instructions. God didn't say that they weren't to touch it, just that they weren't to eat it. That's a minor thing, but the point is, she got it wrong. We so often distort God's truths without realising it in small ways that, that actually lead us off. They become the stepping stone to going into further error. We need to be aware of the fact that we're not that good at handling God's word. We tend to get it wrong. And to avoid us going through the same errors, reinventing the wheel of going down all kinds of heresies, all kinds of problems. Let's learn from people in the past. Instead of making the same mistakes over and over that people have made before, let's learn from those who have tackled these issues in the past. Let's stand, as we said last week, on the, on the shoulders of giants. It's only pride that says, I don't need them. We do. Third, we hear plain untruths. Satan said the exact opposite of what God said. He said, you won't die. There are many people who are mistaken, but there's others who unashamedly just tell lies. And sometimes it's hard to spot them. Sometimes it's easy. 
but sometimes it's hard. We don't see people's hearts. They look reasonable, they look plausible, but actually they're just telling us lies. And sometimes they're not even aware of it. They've been deceived themselves. Sin has deceived them and they're deceiving others. Fourth, Satan made sin look attractive. Your eyes will be opened. Yes, instead of just knowing good, they would know good and evil. The problem is, although God can know good and evil without evil affecting his nature, he remains holy even though he is able to see good and evil. Mankind can only know evil if evil is in our hearts. So Eve thought she would be able to see more and have more knowledge. But actually, the devil was tempting her not to be wiser, but to be corrupt, to be broken. The only way we can know good and evil is if evil is in our hearts. And that's what happened. Fifth, the woman looked at the forbidden fruit with a new attitude. That which would bring death suddenly looked attractive. It looked pleasing. Too often things that are not good for us look very attractive. The adverts on TV that get us to spend... We get more stuff and we get bigger bills to pay. And at the end of it, sometimes we end up being in debt, being in all kinds of problems because we can't afford. We Something looked attractive, but it wasn't a blessing. Or someone sees, someone else say, eyes meet, they meet up, they have an affair. What looks attractive, what seems promising, ends up wrecking relationships, wrecking marriages, adultery, relationship breakups. What looks attractive often is simply sin and destruction with a nice wrapper on it. If only they listened to God's word, stood on his promises, heeded his warnings, they would not have sinned. We would not have suffered. And this pattern continues. Jesus says to the disbelieving Pharisees, For you are the children of your father the devil. That is, they're just following his footsteps. And you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. On top of that, we end up in these last days. As we get closer to Christ's return, we seem to be fitting what Paul described to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul encourages Timothy, who was a young man, a young pastor, He needed encouragement. Paul writes, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. 
for time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. It's difficult to be conclusive uh, when trying to identify the fulfilment of prophecy. But all I can say is that postmodernism fits this very, very well. People reject the truth. They believe and follow all kinds of ideas, stories, explanations of why there is evil in the world, myths. They no longer listen to sound teaching. They look elsewhere, often on the internet, for whatever excites them, whatever their desires and itching ears want to hear. We need to be careful. We need to be aware of what our own hearts are like. We have tried to address that problem in a small way. We've got a lending library here. We've got many good books and they're such a blessing, these good books. We should be delving into it. I know some people really do a lot, but we should be delving into these good books instead of going on the internet and or searching for things and believing things that that really our hearts desire, our sinful desires, our itching ears want to hear at times. We need to be satisfied with the old, old story of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. We're in danger of each of us becoming a law unto ourselves, doing our own will, doing our own desires, following what we want, instead of humbly following God's word and the legitimate laws that are upon us. There's even a really good book. I just pulled it out of the library there this morning. Don't follow your heart. A really good book by John Bloom. God's ways are not our ways. There's an awful lot of good in that. Well, that's the problem. What is the solution? The solution is to trust God's word above all else, not ourselves or others. Pastors need to hear this. David Wells, almost 30 years ago, wrote a book titled no place for truth or whatever happened to evangelical theology that's the title the overview of the book notes that the evidence indicates that evangelical pastors have abandoned their traditional role as ministers of the word to become therapists and managers of small businesses we call churches Along with their parishioners, they have abandoned genuine Christianity and biblical truth in favour of the sort of inner-directed, experience-based religion that now pervades Western society. According to Wells, they have lost the truth that God stands outside all human experience, that he still summons sinners to repentance and belief regardless of their self-image, and that he calls his church to stand fast in his truth against the blandishments in a godless world. But each of us also ought to stand on God's word in whatever situation we find ourselves in. At the end of Pilgrim's Progress, 
there's a, an interesting situation. After Pilgrim's wife and her children set out to follow the path towards the heavenly city that Christian the Pilgrim followed and went to before her, a man named Greatheart is with them. And they come to a place where little faith had been robbed. But there was a man there who had stood strong and he had fought with his sword against three people. Wildhead, inconsiderate and pragmatic. Wildhead, inconsiderate and pragmatic. He overcame. He battled with them for hours. His name was Valiant for Truth. Greatheart asks, but there were three against one. True, he replied, but I had truth on my side. Well, why didn't you cry out for help? I did, to my king, he replied, whom I knew would hear me and provide help, and that was enough for me. As they talked, Greatheart asked to see Valiant for Truth's sword. Ah, it is the Jerusalem sword, that is the word of God. Yes, he replies, if a man has one of these swords with a hand to wield it and skill to use it, then he can risk fighting even an angel or a demon. Its edge will never blunt. It'll cut flesh and bones, soul and spirit and everything. The word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. And thirdly, we ought not to be unaware. We ought to be aware, and we ought to beware of those who bring division and disharmony into church. When divisiveness comes, we ought to know how to handle it. I'm sure we've all had situations where we've been in divisive conversations or had somebody who, I'm thinking even just recently, who just seems to be there just to have arguments, just to cause division, who delights in controversy. It has the appearance of having a theological discussion, but actually that's... It's just a Trojan horse for causing disunity and disharmony amongst God's people. Some people are just like that. There's a place for theological discussions, but we have to approach them with humility. We ought not to let pride take over. We ought not to try and gain converts for our particular view and have a power over them. We ought not to make it about us. In the last week or so I came across a blog post by Pastor Chris Gordon who tackles this issue of how to identify someone who's divisive. He says, first, divisive persons have a, an obsession and unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrelling. In 1 Timothy 6.4, Paul specifies that some people are full of pride, having an unhealthy obsession with fighting as they spend their time quarreling over words. We should always ask, what's the purpose here of this discussion? Is someone seeking the unity and harmony and love between God's people? 
or is there division? A craving to have an argument. We ought to have humility in our hearts as we come to these things. And sometimes they're not important enough. If they're going to cause division, well, let's just not even go there. Let's celebrate our unity in Christ. Let's encourage and build up. Second, divisive people will serve themselves in a theological dispute. They're not interested in building up the church. They don't care about the truths already known, but they focus on the things that are maybe unknown, controversial. Ephesians 4 tells us that pride makes a dispute about winning rather than helping believers walk in the unity of the Spirit, he writes. We could also note that we don't have to know everything. There are things that we don't know, it's okay. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the revealed things that are clear belong to us, but the things that are hidden, the things that are unclear, well, they're not for us to know. That's for God to know. Third, divisive people create obstacles to hearing the, the true gospel with false ideas or they elevate secondary matters to, to primary matters. They result in division over secondary matters when they ought not to. We lived in a, we were in London for nearly 10 years in a church where there were Baptists and there were Presbyterian-minded folk in the same church. The Baptists only baptized adults. And yet the, the Presbyterian-minded folk wanted to baptize babies. And so there's one of the elders, if you were Baptist-minded, that elder would baptize you as an adult. But if you wanted your child baptized, another elder would baptize the children. It's a, it's a serious point, but it ought not to divide. And people lived in harmony, great harmony, despite having very strong views on this matter. We ought not, we ought not to let secondary matters divide us. As it, the old saying goes, we ought to have unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and grace in all things. Fourth, he says, divisive pastors have a, divisive people have a trail of bad fruit that they leave behind them. The fruit is disputing, the fruit, uh, the fruit is difficult relationships. Paul lists in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh is the result of their interaction as Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions and envy. Does their engagement result in the peace and love among the brethren or destruction and dissension among those who listen? Fifth, Chris Gordon writes, Div Divisive people do not submit to any authority in their lives other than themselves. That's a telling point. 
Any true servant of God will desire to see all theological heresy properly addressed among the authority structures God has provided. God has given his church and their courts to address false doctrine and heresy. Divisive people work outside this authority structure to bring the demise of the church among our members. They attack church authorities as incompetent and compromised in what they deem are the most important issues and are quick to attack church leaders who God put in authority over them. Divisive people are a law to themselves and stand over the lawgiver himself as the authority to which everyone must submit. In terms of handling the truth and divisions that the truth can bring or divisive people, we ought to humbly and firmly put Christ and the church first. What counts most is not our opinions or our positions on theological matters, but the unity and peace in the church with Christ being central. We ought to be on our guard, not only for the people who cause divisions wherever they go, and they sometimes go from one church to the next until they can find somewhere where they can gain a lot of power and control. But also for people we know well who might be a blessing so much of the time, but on occasions, on certain points, they cause strife and unsettle others. Paul says to Timothy, don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. When dealing with difficult topics, actually we don't need to know anything about the topic to know how to respond. The key thing is to look at the attitude that's coming across. Is there pride more than the seeking of peace? Is there humility or is there divisiveness? Are people know-it-alls or do they humbly want to seek to learn? Are they hungry for God's word? Are they concerned about the good of the church or getting more people to accept their ideas? In terms of engaging with people or those who veer into such debates, we ought to cherish unity and peace far more than we often do. We don't have to engage with everything. Sometimes the right thing to do is to, is to not engage at all. Paul writes in Romans 16, Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. That's strong language. Stay away from them. Instead, there are times when we do need to engage and we need to speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Speaking the truth in love doesn't just mean with a gentle voice. Speaking the truth in love means speaking the truth in a context which builds up love, which builds up unity and peace. And sometimes that means not speaking certain things because that is not conducive to love. And when it comes to conspiracy theories... 
answering the problem of evil in the world and offering a solution of rebelling against those in power or those who are doing such evil. We don't need that kind of salvation. We have a saviour. We know the real source of evil in the world. The real conspiracy is that the devil is there spreading lies. And the real salvation is that Christ has come. He has overcome sin. He has overcome evil. And when we walk in fellowship with him, we overcome the world too in him. The more we go down that road, the more we're walking away from Christ. The more we're taking our focus off Christ. Let's not become obsessed with those things. Instead, let's focus on the reality of sin in our own hearts, temptation around us, temptation even from the enemy himself. Let's rejoice in our Saviour. Let's place our faith in him in all things. Let's have joy in him instead of fear that other worldviews instill in us. The more we are content in God's word, the less we will feel the need for answers in other places. The more we are searching for answers in other places, the less we are looking for contentment in God's word. Jesus said in his prayer in John chapter 17, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And the psalmist prays, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart, so that I may honour you. In order to seek truth, in order to know truth, let's fix our eyes upon Jesus. Let's not go off after all other things. Let's look to him and let's be content with what we have in his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth, your revealed word to us. Lord, we pray that you help us to be content with what you have given us. Help us delight, to delight in your word, your truth. Lord, help us not to seek answers, fulfilment in anything else. Help us, Lord, to be content with your word. Because you are the word of God. You are the truth of God. Lord, forgive us when we have chased after other things. Forgive us when we have been divisive. Forgive us when we have taken our focus off of Jesus. Forgive us when we have not thought of the unity and the peace of your people. Lord, help us as we move forward to to deal with these things and to, to be content with your word, your truth. To look for our joy and our contentment in Christ alone. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Lead us into the truth and we shall be set free. In Jesus' name, amen.